Welcome to the Worlds of Maybar audiobook podcast. Previously on Echelon, Aramis obtained granite shark blood for a powerful potion as part of her plan to confront Paul. And Soma discovered rumors were growing around her future plans for Pan. And now, chapter six of Echelon. Gail was staring at Aramis. She was behind Aramis's back, but Aramis could feel the staring. She tried to pretend she couldn't as she carefully stirred in the blood from the granite shark into the cocktail. She had to add, to the fire cactus base, ten parts blood to one part of apple sequoia juice, alternating, stirring between. It reminded her of making batter for a pumpkin bread. The apple sequoia juice was outrageously expensive though it was still cheaper per milliliter than the blood would have been if she'd had to buy it. Fortunately, even though she'd only got a pittance of what the young bull granite shark had been worth, it had been enough to get everything else she needed, including a handful of Aleph Inc. coins, because that was the only currency that would work in both worlds. Money out of the way, she had to scramble. She needed to get to the Narthex on time so that her plan to sneak through Threshold and across all of Prometheus would work. It wasn't a very good plan, but it was something. One problem at a time. You're getting really good at this, said Gale. And I haven't even had you help that much with potions and you've already got the knack. Aramis let out a long sigh. I wish I could figure out teleportation stones. Definitely not there yet, Gale laughed. Give that another ten years. Or twenty. There's a reason those are so expensive. What's your plan for getting through this time? It's not great. We've already exploited one security weakness. It won't work this time. Aramis's plan mostly consisted of a stupid idea that wouldn't work, with a backup of straight up fighting her way through, which also wouldn't work because it violated Paul's condition on her. In reality... There was a risk that the condition might prevent her from getting into Threshold at all to try her first plan, but she figured she'd deal with that when it happened. Getting back is the real problem, though. That I may have to play by ear. I may have to ask Jin for help on that one. Why can't he just get you through anyway, a big wig like that? I imagine he may want a favor in return, though. Something sizable. Hermes finished pouring in the last of the blood into the mixture. Now she just needed to let it simmer and reduce for a bit. She wiped her hands on a rough rag and turned to face Gale. Well, he said something about that guy I met at the Narthex. Maybe being able to help makes it sound like he's an Aleph. Even if he is, it doesn't mean he can get me across safely. And even if he did... The Gammies may still catch on and lock up both of us for violating second life laws. That almost happened with Paul. The one you're going to see. Yeah. He said that if he hadn't caught the guy who'd killed him, they would have thrown him in prison. Gail sighed dramatically. He should have just stayed here with you. Well, he didn't want to. He's a dummy then. I don't understand these young men that will waste so much chasing after what they can't have and ignoring what is right in front of them. My brother was the same way. 
Aramis stared at her simmering potion. He can't help wanting what he wants. Aramis knew that's how it worked, because she couldn't help wanting what she wanted. Are you going to tell him how you feel when you break the bond? Aramis nodded. Good. In my experience, honesty has always been the surest course. Also, you never know. A hint of mischievousness came across Gail's face. Maybe telling him the truth will change his mind about what he wants. Aramis sighed, wanting to say, probably not. But she didn't have the energy to argue right now about what fantasies were worth entertaining and which weren't. This is all an ordeal for you, isn't it? More than the usual troublesome errand. Aramis wasn't quite sure what she meant. She kept watching the simmering pan. Gail went about walking through the workshop, checking things hanging, adjusting tools here and there. If I was in your situation, I'd probably be using Algins every night. Been a while since I was as forlorn as you look. Don't think I could handle it well. I can't use those for any kind of fantasy. Gail looked back at Aramis but didn't say anything. It's agony. It would be a lot less terrifying if you came with me. Paul waited for Susie's answer. The two of them were sitting opposite of each other in their parents' living room. The grandfather clock in the corner ticked in the silence. Susie didn't look at Paul. Is it that important to you? Paul stood up and paced in front of her with his eyes on the floor. I know your parents hate the masquerade. I'm not against it, Susie said, her folded arms and facial expressions saying otherwise. But, I mean, aren't you worried? It's a party being put on by an Aleph for other Alephs. How do you know it's not just going to turn into a big orgy? Paul sighed. This conversation reminded him of the awkward conversation he'd had with Aramis concerning the bond or anything dealing with Pravi culture. Aramis had the same black and white, paranoid perspective of secular, worldly things as Susie was showing right now. Well, not the exact same perspective, but they both shared that somewhat ignorant, slightly bigoted view of non-seven following people. Aramis had felt that all other Pravids were oversexed maniacs, treacherous and cruel. A month ago, to Susie, the Alephs were false gods, so she was having enough trouble getting over that, convincing her that they were regular people, albeit aloof administrative aristocrats, not really much different from her considerably wealthy parents, might be asking too much, even though technically her boyfriend was an Aleph also. There isn't going to be an orgy. Her eyes narrowed almost indiscernibly. You don't have to come if you don't want to. It will probably be pretty weird for you, now that I think about it. Uh, lots of Alephs have previed bodyguards and assistants. There will be blue, orange, and gray people all over the place. Everyone will be wearing masks, but I mean, my, my boss has horns. Horns? Yeah. Her eyes narrowed a little more. He kind of does look like a suave demon man. I have a feeling he won't be the only odd-looking person there. Her face remained frozen, as if trying to hide how she felt, but failing miserably. You don't have to come. It's okay.
Hey everybody, it's a new year. New stuff going on, some stuff that isn't so new. I don't have anything fancy to mention here right now. All I really have to talk about is a whine about how I don't know if I'll get all the artwork I need done on time for the chapters following this one. There's always something. Anyway, Echelon is written and produced by me, Andy Wright. You can follow me online at A. William Wright. All music is from the album Into the Dark by the band The Restitution. The World's Amabar podcast is hosted by the folks over at Anchor.fm. Chapter 7 will be out January 18th. Uh, hopefully the drawing I'm supposed to have done of Paul will be ready by then as well. We'll see. Either way, let's get back to the story. It was cold, windy, and maybe an hour before the sun would be up. Bits of mist bit at Aramis's face as she crested the top of the low hill. Aramis, sitting on the back of Liamhan, Gale's huge robot leopard, looked down at the Narthex maze before them. The water of the half-moon clearing at the center of the maze reflected the cloudy sky's pre-dawn glow through the hazy shroud of icy fog. It had only taken a day to get here riding alone on the powerful machine, as opposed to the four days that had taken when she'd smuggled 80 people out of Pan through here last month. This time, there weren't any armed folks waiting in the clearing, not guards or mercenaries. One obstacle fewer than before. Today was two days before the masquerade, so even the assembly security forces seemed to be relaxing for the holiday. Still, she had an uneasy feeling in her gut, a worry about a worry about how this might go. But she dismounted and took her duffel bag and her heavy canister both off of Leonham's shoulders. You can go back to Gale now, buddy. I won't be back for a few days. I don't want you resting out in this haze. Liam Han looked at her and made a mechanical sort of grumble. She stomped a paw on the ground loudly a couple times, then sat down. You should leave. Liam Han turned away from her, looking at the maze. Fine, do whatever you want. Aramis headed down the hill to the wide river and the maze. She turned around just as she reached the bank, looking up at Liamhan. The metallic creature was now half visible through the fog as she rested her head on her paws like she was bored. She did not look as mechanical anymore. She looked more like a ghostly skeleton of a sphinx. It sent a chill up Aramis's neck. Aramis faced the maze. She remembered being here almost exactly a month ago today. She remembered Paul and his indifference toward her. She remembered his confusion when she'd asked him to stay with her. During that last dreadful moment, they were next to each other in threshold. She remembered the urging in her to command him to stay. To abuse the power she had because they were bonded. She could command him to come back to her right now, using the ash clam half, and he'd probably have to follow it. Shutting her eyes tightly a moment, she banished these thoughts and got back to business. She took the glass vial of her first dose of the Atlas cocktail she'd made out of a pocket. She flicked off the rubber stopper and downed it. It tasted terrible, but after the shock of the bitter, rotten flavor of the thing had faded, she felt a slight jitteriness in her limbs. 
It was similar to the feeling of having too much espresso all at once, except without that weak, thin feeling that caffeine gave you when you overdid it. She felt whole and solid. She held up her hands toward the maze, but a shot of apprehension went through her, mostly vague, something like doubt about something. She ignored it and reached out into the water of the maze. And here was when she felt the real impact of the cocktail. It did not just double her physical strength. It also doubled her elemental magic. Except that it did not feel like it had merely doubled it. She felt that her command had increased tenfold. The entire river felt weightless. She could feel the mass and power of those millions of liters of water rushing downhill. But she also felt wholly able of redirecting any and all of it in whatever way she desired. So she turned her outstretched arms from palms facing down to facing up, and the entire river seemed to pinch up in her line of sight. Water buckled in a line from her to the center of the maze. She lifted up a leg slightly, then stomped forward and swung her arms out hard to the side. She yelled as her foot splashed down into the edge of the river, but she couldn't hear her yell. Water roared as it shot outward in both directions, but she couldn't see this because as it shot out, it all flashed into ice. Steam exploded around the ice to draw all of the heat away from the water in order to bring it solid. Infinite shattering branches added to the cacophony, veiled by the steam. Finally, the intermittent splashing and snapping of all the branches falling back down to the water ended. The steam faded enough to merely be part of the already enveloping fog. Fog that was faint enough for Aramis to now see a clear, wide path through the maze to the center of the narthex. On either side of the pathway was a tall, jagged wall of ice. Aramis readjusted her duffel bag and the strap of the canister and walked quickly. The maze was quickly regrowing, repairing itself around her, branches and roots straggling outward, almost like tentacles trying in vain to grab her. Some branches squeezed and shattered parts of her ice walls, but mostly they grew around them. She was through the maze before any branches had got close to her. She felt as if she could have uprooted the entire maze even now. Her heart was beating hard with the rush of her strength. She looked up at the writhing carving of Prometheus in the rock wall ahead of her, but the moment she made eye contact with the ancient character of myth, she felt her legs lose strength. She fell to her knees in the river, the icy rapid water flowing up to her shoulders. What? She tried to get back up, but was attacked with vertigo and nausea as she looked up at the carving. She took a few breaths and got herself to her feet, her eyes down, pushing through the shock of the weakness. Every step forward was harder as if the river's current kept getting stronger, even though she was walking perpendicular to the current. She wondered if she had screwed up the Atlas cocktail somehow, but that didn't make any sense. Those cocktails never just dropped off their effects a mere half minute after giving a proper full boost. She thought about this as she continued one step after the other. Then she reached the door. As she reached under the water to find the ledge, she was hit with a pounding headache. 
But not just that. A surge of emotions hit her. It hit her and rushed over her and continued an unending supply, in perfect concert with the identical motion of the river. The emotion was not fear or apprehension or worry. It was anticipation. Anticipation that if she turned around, incredible pleasure would wash over her body, that all her anxiety and even the headache would go away, that she would feel light and feel soft and comfortable. She studied her breathing, feeling the edge of that relaxation touching at the fringes of her perception, as if she was freezing and she was dipping her toe into a bath at just the perfect temperature. But she closed her eyes and remembered why she was here. She felt the anticipation and that urging to turn around, but she still reached under the water and gripped on the ledge of the door. She knew she could lift it. She knew she was more than strong enough. She had made the cocktail perfectly. She had killed a strong young granite shark and properly prepared its blood. There was no way she could not lift this door. Just lift the door and go in. She pulled up, but her mind filled with visions of turning away and walking out of the maze. A dizziness of pleasure dropped into her brain as she did, making her hands relax just a little. Now angry at all this, she cursed and stood up, staring at the door, then at her badly shivering hands. Her entire body felt warm, ready for the joy of turning around. This is so stupid. She frowned at the door, then looked at the poem carved next to it. But instead of the hymn to Prometheus like it was supposed to have there, it said, Many stronger than you have tried to break the conditions set upon them by their bondees. All have failed. It is now a part of your nature to submit. She stumbled back, away from the door, terrified and shaking even worse now. She looked at her hands, which were going numb, then back at the door. The carved words were now replaced with, in larger letters, the single word, SUBMIT. She shook her head. No! But now that she was here, now that she was at the door, now that deadly guards stood on the other side, guards that would either kill her or imprison her for being a preview trying to return to her original world, there was no avoiding it. This was a clear violation of Paul's condition. She moved to the door and then backed away, then moved in and touched the door, then collapsed. Some sort of endless repetition of back and forth like that, dozen of attempts, all failing. After what felt like a half hour of this battle, her mind was so soggy that she couldn't fight anymore. Her eyes barely opened. She held a hand against the door, everything in her view out of focus, and she started thinking about going back home. Just get back on the arm hand and ride back to Hemstock. Or maybe she could pull out the ash clam half and command Paul to come here to her. Either would work. She took the ash clam half from her pocket and looked at it. It was blurry, maybe from her eyes being too weary to focus, maybe from sweat getting into her eyes. She considered writing the command, and the same anticipation of pleasure hit her. It hit her so hard that her heart rate and her breathing slowed radically for a moment. Her nostrils flared open. She closed her eyes as it washed over her. It washed over and promised even better bliss if she just did it. But she couldn't. 
Paul had passed his test and was getting an amazing job. He had everything working out. She couldn't stop that. She wanted to. Wanting to be free of all these battles, she turned around. As she did, her body pulsed with a mixture of sloppy elation and frustrated dissatisfaction and raw adrenaline. She walked to the maze, now having fully regrown back to its full size, and put out a hand on the left side. She left the narthex in a daze, feeling wholly dissatisfied and lied to by all that anticipation. But that seemed like a good thing. What kind of a life was she living if giving up on doing what was right could satisfy her? She might not have much hope left in her that the name would ever allow her to feel true satisfaction in anything, to ever taste anything resembling happiness. But at least failure and cowardice didn't bring either of those either. When it all faded away and she found herself waking up from this enchantment, maybe 45 minutes since she took the Alice cocktail, she found herself standing outside the maze with a deep rage directed at herself. A headache throbbed as she looked down at the river, the river that less than an hour ago she could impose her will upon freely, the river that had been nothing but a plaything. Now it was strong and cold and did not have any concern for her. She listened to the harsh wind blowing around her, trying to push her thin, frail form over as it pushed the mists away. She had to figure out a way to convince herself that the name that Seven cared about her, cared about this wraith that was as thin as mist. She sat down next to the water and looked down at the muddy bank in front of her. She remembered reading once that C.S. Lewis had pointed out that faith built on logical arguments can be destroyed merely by the presentation of a better constructed argument to the contrary, meaning believing in something was more than thinking you had all the facts and philosophies sorted out. Somehow this thought was comforting to her, enough so that she got up and walked along the river downstream. She heard Laomhen's large metal paws thumping behind her as the robot cat followed her. The sky above was all dirty grays, except for a lighter gray creasing the eastern sky above the mountains. Dreary cracks of brightness heralding the approaching sunrise. She came to a short cliff by a wide but shallow waterfall and stopped. A bitter wind whipped at her as she stood there, looking up at what seemed like an indecisive storm. She wanted to watch the wind twisting up the clouds as they built and boiled around the mountain peaks and tell herself, this is the name's creation. Then she could marvel in the depth and majesty, even when it was cold and frightening and dark. But she couldn't do that. All of this was built by humans, just copies of what the name had made. But as she stood there, as time passed, her confident understanding of the order of this universe began to break down. The Kuiper Mountains became a range of proud blades of stone. The clouds became an angry sky. The technicalities faded, and she could not help but feel a deep sense of vastness. It was foolish and felt blasphemous to feel something like that. Then she looked behind her at the tall forests 
and a much taller Mount Alanessa, and saw a block of bright light hitting the crest of the mountain. She stared at it, as if it was something alien. Then she turned back around. Through a saddle in the mountain range, through the thick clouds, the very top crest of the rising sun had found a straight path. She could see it moving, growing, the purest light. It rose higher, was half covered by the clouds, hanging over the wild peaks, and it filled them with light. The whole world began to glow silver. The stone mountain crests and cold glaciers and snow-buried timberline forests and fir-tree-covered mountain roots and unwavering river were filled with color. Well, what colors Aramis could see anyway? The sky was an upside-down landscape of blurry hills painted pewter, pearl, flint, porcelain, ink, cobalt, and slate. Aramis could see all the tiny variations, the tiny bits of blue and green and cream mixed into the millions of shades of gray. It was so vivid, it was overwhelming. Aramis stared up at the sky and a deep calm came over her as tears ran down her cheeks. The salty water was quickly chilled by the wind, while at the same time the newborn sunlight warmed her skin. She did not understand this moment. She didn't know if the sky was a beauty made by man or made by the name, but it was something that called for silence. That much she knew. She was still angry and still feared the deep bitterness inside herself. But she had come face to face with beauty. If this beauty could exist, even with her limited perception of color, then there was a chance other beauty could exist someday in her life. A bitter temptation rose up in her to call that pontification mere sentimentality, but she pushed it down. For one minute, she needed to let herself hope. There was a chance that the name was listening to her. She felt something nudge her gently on the shoulder. She turned and saw the meter-long head of Liamhan next to her. Shoulders slumped, forehead low. It leaned in and rubbed the side of its hard-edged metal head against her shoulder, shoving her slightly over. She felt her face smiling slightly at how silly this was and put a hand on Liamhan's nose. The huge metal beast folded up its legs and plopped down next to her, resting its head on the ground next to her so that her hand could keep in the same place. It made a rhythmic churning noise, which was a sort of mechanical blend between a purr and a growl as the metal body brilliantly reflected the dawn's light. As Aramis's body warmed in the sunlight and her contemplation of Liamhan's goofy behavior calmed her, she was able to start thinking again. There was one thing, one awkward option. She could ask for help, but she needed to take care of something first. Another problem she'd been worried about but had ignored. She pulled out the ash clam half. She found a pencil and wrote on it, Will you be free any time during the equinox? She waited and watched the river. Liamhan kept up her purring. Then Aramis felt the clamshell half scratching. She looked down and saw, I guess I'm going to some party for the masquerade. This did not surprise her. She knew about Aleph High Society from Ignacio and knew that there was a chance Paul would be invited to something. She hesitated a moment before writing her response 
but she was so numb from the experience of the last hour that she felt nearly no apprehension in replying with, can you get me an invitation? Formal invitation to an Equinox masquerade, repeated Soma, who was halfway to another sip of coffee as she looked up at Sorensen. Soma was sitting in her breakfast nook, wearing pajamas that she had smuggled in from her favorite department store in Helison, her hair tied up in a messy bun. The once quaint table and once adorably carved chairs around her were all piled up with official correspondences on expensive security paper from everywhere. Every city across the main continent, as well as cities and sovereigns from hundreds of islands all over the globe. Every problem and technicality related to the Soul Offender Roundup. Authorization requests to send pravied bounty hunters to stove, ones that had incidentally or purposely killed civilians. Funding slash SSG assistance requests to provide food for the growing jail populations awaiting trial. Desperate petitions for imminent domain land acquisition to set up temporary tent city transient housing for SSG residents displaced due to their housing being repurposed as temporary jailing. Hundreds of requests with one thing in common. They required seated level approval. And Soma was the bottom rung seated. This was the other edge of the double-edged sword. She had freedom to carry out justice. Yes. And the other pan seated left her to it. But when there were consequences for carrying out that justice, which she single-handedly forced on an entire planet, she had to single-handedly manage it all. The entire office space wing of her house was packed full of administrative specialists handling the actual execution of all of this madness. Hewn had helped her find an MOA operations liaison who had helped Travis with the hiring and training of all the employees. The house that had started as a lonely fortress, silently watched by a dozen immortals sworn to protect her, had grown to a government office building stuffed with 68 workers transformed into MOA headquarters for Pan in just a month. She had been both embarrassed and relieved that the architect she'd hired to design the house had insisted on not only convincing her to make it twice as large as she'd asked, but also secretly adding two basement floors with additional offices. Which still wasn't enough. Now, even her personal office in her resident wing had been taken over, now being used by Travis to manage her security and the day-to-day operations. The Abenston mayor had, at first, been furious to find out that the center point for all that she and her constituents found evil and vile had suddenly swelled into being an hour's bus ride from his city. But then there was the additional money entering the economy from the employees. Abenston hated the Alephs and hated the assembly, but it was still a city in Pan, and Pan was full of capitalists. But none of that explained why Soma was now getting a formal invitation to an Equinox masquerade to be held at the Evanston Mayor's Mansion, a place she hadn't even been allowed to step foot into before. Sorensen had a look of concern on her face as she nodded. Yes, hand-delivered from the mayor's office. Are you okay, Seated? Soma blinked and looked up and took the heavy, large, maroon envelope. This isn't another assassination attempt? A repeat of Hemstock? Sorensen took a moment to respond. 
not on the spring equinox. It's a night for showing off. I never enjoyed masquerades, not even in my 20s. Ignacio was invited to one back in the commune, but neither of us cared to go. Someone was still holding the folded-up invitation. She didn't want to open it and read it, but she had a feeling she needed to attend. She needed to put on a show of good faith, of being cooperative. There is one very important detail, which you'll see when you read it. It's only hosted by Appenston. It's being paid for by the senior pan seated, the one you put at the top by ousting Negri. Soma's eyes squinted. Well, that makes a little more sense of it all. It also means I probably don't have much of a choice concerning the matter. Either I go or insult the assembly. Sorensen exhaled out her nose, her body relaxing a little but her forehead tightening. It's also a test and an insult. They're only giving you one day to get ready. They want to see if you'll hop too, while also spitting in your face by showing you they don't give a damn if they inconvenience you. Soma sighed. Well, or it's just typical government incompetence. Either way, the effect is the same. I have to show them I'm not phased. I guess I need to find a dress and a mask. Sorensen smiled. Well, Hune already has that taken care of. He does. I already have a dress and a mask. I had this all planned out when I was just going to pretend I was in makeup for the equinox. Use the holiday as an excuse to walk around masked with blue skin. Probably the only day of the year it would work. Now I just need to drop in, break the bond, and get out. I don't see... No! Jin folded his arms. You're going to an Aleph masquerade as the plus one of an Aleph. Wait, what? Aramis stood up quickly and banged her head on a lamp hanging over the table between the seats in Jin's study. She clutched her head, her eyes shut tight. Jin laughed loudly and shamelessly. You haven't figured it out yet? Your friend is an Aleph now. You said it yourself. He passed the test and he's going to join the DAC. That means he's either already been made one or is just waiting for the paperwork to clear. But a flood of questions flashed through Aramis's mind. If that's the case, what happens to our bond? That makes him the superior, doesn't it? Jin squinted an eye. I don't know. You're the Pravid. You should know that stuff. Ridiculous. Amherst fell back into the chair and sighed. The entire world is going crazy. And more than just this one. Remember, we're taking a trip to Prometheus for this. I haven't been there in a while myself. We need a good backstory for you. In case anyone asks you where you're from, you need to be able to fool them into thinking you're a Prometheus Pravid. Irritated, Aramis resisted the temptation to again say that she'd already prepared all of that for her original plan. This was going to be much easier since she'd be around Aleph's, which knew Pravies existed. Instead of being around citizens who she'd have to fool into thinking she was just in makeup, I'll have to explain some of my plan to Paul over the dumb shell, I guess. Jin took a drink from the tumbler half filled with whiskey. Have you told him why you're coming? Aramis shook her head. Ha! Jin rubbed the back of his neck. Oh, his imagination must be reeling. Worst thing that can happen to a man is to have a woman tell him they need to talk, but not tell him what about. Aramis snorted, then mumbled under her breath. Well, too bad. 
Do you think your condition is going to be a problem? You're still stepping into danger. Say if someone is socially awkward or something and asks you about your personal life. I mean, if you're confident in your ability to lie and improvise, you'll be okay. But the life of a pravid is vastly different between Pan and Prometheus. Hermes ran a hand halfway through her hair, then held it there as she again held her tongue. She knew it would be a problem. She really didn't want to face another psychological wall like she did at the Narthex. Then she had a thought. She wasn't facing that wall right now when she was preparing for this operation. Technically, she was again in violation of the condition because everything she was doing was done for the goal of the broadcasts. Maybe it was all about putting her mental focus in the right place in order to avoid that wall. She looked up at Jin. It's a good question, but it is an equinox masquerade. Asking personal questions is pretty far from normal protocol, at least at the ones I've been to, which have all been pretty toned down. I don't know what the bigwig parties are like. Depends on who's throwing them. 